This is The Impact Report. I'm your host, Katie Elman. The Impact Report brings together students and faculty in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, social entrepreneurship, and more. These conversations go live the first and third Friday of each month. This week, Bard MBA's Emma Jenkins speaks with Matthew Weatherly White, co-founder of CapRock. So Matthew, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. We're thrilled to have you with us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me to join join the conversation. And Emma, would you just start by telling us, you know, what made you decide to bring Matthew to the podcast? Yeah, definitely. Um, For my uh, accounting class, um, our professor asked us to pick any topic of interest, any company of interest, or any professional out there leading in the sustainable business space, um, and to research that person or that company or that topic, and to create a approximately four-page case study on on that subject, on whatever we find. Um, and I knew that I wanted to do something in the impact investing space, and um, I'm new to the, to the realm for sure. So um, I asked my professor, you know, do you know of anything interesting going on? Anyone I can, I can interview or any company I can look into? And she pointed me in, in your direction, Matthew, um, and super fascinated, super hooked on your work and your ideas. And um, <laughs> That's really I cool. I'm, I'm glad that my somewhat random musings have, um, have sort of captured your, your interest and perhaps even your imagination not to put too sharp a point on this, I think it's exactly that kind of engagement, be it intellectual or emotional or even academic, that I hope to spark in students like you because I'm a big believer in sort of the epidemiology of ideas. And if we look at modern portfolio theory and the way that sort of spread from an academic environment to be sort of the standard risk mitigation tool on Wall Street, in a perfect world, this idea of harnessing the power of the capital markets to create durable, measurable social and economic value, um, social and environmental value, excuse me. Um, If I can have that spark in students like you, when you go out into the workforce, you'll carry that inspiration with you. And then gradually, incrementally, the idea will infect the host and capitalism will shift. So to hear you say, hey, I'm sort of hooked on your ideas, it's like, yes, bring that (laughs) on all day long. Yeah, well, I mean, my first question is really general for listeners who aren't familiar with your work and haven't haven't done the research that I have. Um, okay. Just about your career history and kind of Caprock's um, story. Sure. So, my career history, um, a slightly unconventional. You know, I graduated, believe it or not, with a degree in creative writing from Dartmouth, and although I had had some experience with investing both my personal capital and as a trustee on one of my family's trusts, I did not for for a second imagine that I would carve a career path in finance. Um, it wasn't until years later that I got a job at Smith Barney as a bottom of the food chain retail stockbroker at the recommendation of a really good friend of mine who I'd done some work for with his family foundation. Um, and then once I was at Smith Barney, 
which was a mainstream, a fairly boutique at the time that I was hired, but it sort of grew into this absolutely mammoth mainstream Wall Street broker dealer. The more, the longer I was there, the more I learned, the more I learned, the more disturbed I became mm. at the business model on Wall Street. And the more disturbed I became, the more convinced I was that there had to be a different way of doing this business. Um, and I love investing. I love the capital markets. I love the whole process of aggregating capital, funding ideas, launching companies, scaling solutions. I mean, it's one of the most endlessly entertaining games of three-dimensional chess I can imagine. And yet, on Wall Street, as it you know was slash still is practiced, there was this fundamental disconnect in my mind between the services that were claimed to be offered and the actual business model of the big broker dealer big big broke dealers that dominated finance. So about in the year 2000 or so, in the immediate aftermath of the dot-com collapse, um, I decided I was going to leave Smith Barney. It just took a long time for me to figure out what that was going to look like. I had um, an existing mm. book of business. I had great relationships with my clients. I didn't really want to leave them stranded. I certainly didn't want to leave them in the hands of other brokers. Um, and so it took about five years to figure out what my off-ramp was going to be. And there were a lot of false starts interviewing with other firms. Um, thinking about jumping ship entirely and moving to a private equity firm or a venture fund. Um, and eventually I, I decided I just wanted to start my own gig. So um, I gathered a handful of co-founders. There were six of us to begin with. Um, we ended up firing one and then one just recently retired. So there's sort of five remaining. Um, and we launched the Caprock Group in 2005. We spent about three years building um, systems and um, sort of the big technology backbone for how we were going to run the business. And we started marketing in a in a gesture of remarkable market timing. We started marketing in 2008, like right before the financial crisis struck. Mm. Um, and at that point, we had about 350 million in um, assets under management, most of which was a legacy lift out practice from Smith Barney and some partner capital. Um, and we started marketing in sort of 2008, and now we have just under four billion dollars in AUA um, assets under advisement. Um, so the next sort of interesting part of that is how did the impact part come in? Um, so yeah. my background is sort of quasi-environmentalist. I was raised in Colorado. My mom is, and I say this, this with all the respect and love that I can muster, she's sort of a capitalist hippie. Um, when I was really <laughs> little, you know, we'd go to the local organic food place and scoop our oats out of the big bin. And my mom was always talking to us about environmental stewardship um, on some of the land that my family owned, we, we practiced it. We did riparian zone restoration on a river that flowed through one of our properties. I mean, it was a big part of the way that I was raised relative to the, the outdoors in Colorado. And I kind of felt like I had to turn that off in order to function in sort of today's financial services world. And that always bothered me. Um, and then in 2007, I was invited totally randomly to attend a small gathering of what I now know of real thought leaders in this discipline in San Francisco. And it was a sort of a toss off, get together in the evening, bat a bunch of ideas around around this notion of a financial trade off when investing for positive social or environmental value. And the name that the sort of the, the working title of the conference was the Zero Trade Off Conference. And the notion was we can do this without sacrificing financial performance. And it was mm -hmm. like a bell rang in my head. And it was like, this is actually the solution that I didn't realize I was looking for. And I thought about it for about six months. 
I pulled a deck together, pitched my partners to start allocating capital in this direction, um, and they indulged me, and we very quickly landed a very large client, which was helpful for the argument, let us say. Um, and since then, I've basically committed my entire career to this idea that continuing to externalize the negatives associated with the current operating system of capitalism would, at some point, no longer be acceptable. And for me, that was an like that was like an inspirational idea for a career orientation. Mm-hmm. And I've been on that path ever since. Awesome. Yeah, ser- serendipity. Serendipity strikes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I didn't I didn't realize that um that Caprock existed before the impact focus did. Yes, we launched in 2005, um, and we really didn't start doing impact until late 2007. Now, there was a, a little bit of a blip in the middle there because I ran into some of the founders at B-Lab, um, Jay and Andrew, at a SRI in the Rockies conference, and they had this little breakout session on sort of, you know, B Corps. Um, mm-hmm. And I attended because I sort of didn't have anything else going on. And there was only like eight of us in the room, and I was mesmerized. You know, the idea of quantifying best practices in sustainable business management was something I'd never heard before, much less considered. And I, I pursued them after the breakout session, and I got myself on a couple of the standards committees, and I ran mm-hmm. the Caprock group through the, the assessment on a beta test basis, and we passed without doing a single thing differently. And in my naivete, I said to myself, oh, this is going to be great. We're going to be a founding B Corp because clearly whatever these guys think is best practices in sustainable business management maps really closely to what we think is best practices in sustainable business management. This is going to mm-hmm. be easy. So I came back to my partners and I said, hey, guys, I think we should become a certified B Corp. And it took nine months of pride-swallowing siege <laughs> tactics to convince them to do this because, as we all know, the politicization of terms like sustainability and responsibility and environmental stewardship are so profound that the fear that B Corp would start, I mean, B Lab would start talking about things like, oh, I don't know, gay marriage or abortion rights was, was so deep and so entrenched on an almost reflective, reflexive basis mm-hmm. that we didn't, we just, as a group, we couldn't get there. And um, it's sort of a long story on how we did, but we ended up getting over that particular hurdle. We became a founding B Corp, and that was in uh, the end of 2006. So that sort of predated our commitment in impact investing. But it's, you know, what's really interesting to me is that on many, way, in, on many levels, the Caprock Group is an exemplar of the kinds of businesses that need to become sustainable and responsible, right? Right. We don't self-identify as, responsible company like we're not out there pounding the the, the pavement saying hey you know everybody be like us sort of the opposite we're sort of invisible mm-hmm. in that world and yet we are best for the world you know the B, B lab has an annual best for the world um honor and we have been best for the world for our employee employee relations ever since we launched ever since mm-hmm. we became a b corp and two years ago or maybe it was last year we were best for the world employees best for the world in think investments or something and a change and a change maker and it's like i don't even totally understand how that can be because we're such a conventional firm and yet we map so well to the way b lab thinks about sustainable business management that i keep saying to them hey you guys you need to like profile us because we're the kind of company that you need to be attracting 
not mm-hmm. the guys that are sort of, you know, like, you know, seventh generation or method or Burt's Bees or Patagonia, the ones that are like, like dyed in the wool, sustainable, responsible businesses. Um, that's, it's, that's, a, that's such a tangent, but it's a, I think it's a really interesting one for me, at least maybe not for you. <laughs> yeah, no, no, absolutely. Because, and, and that's sort of my draw to this, um, to this feel that it's, it's sort of, I mean, it could be seen as an intrinsic contradiction to be, to be like interested in, in finance that is sustainable. Um, and so I guess if, if you became a B Corp before you really got into the impact investing space, then what, what were they looking at? I mean, you, you mentioned employee engagement. Um, what were the yeah. standards around that, that designated you as a B Corp aside from the impact investing piece? Yeah. So have you, have you, um, have you looked at the B survey, the B assessment at all? Not very closely, no. Yeah, yeah, no worries. It, it, it doesn't surprise me. It's incredibly detailed. Um, mm-hmm. So there's four principal categories. Um, there's community, environment, employees, and I'm blanking on the fourth. I apologize. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until much later that they added in the layer of impact investments and including that in the assessment. And when that, when they did that, we suddenly became a change maker because our points went straight up, you know, straight up. Um, mm-hmm. Because we were doing so much of that, but um, because of our the because of primarily of the way that we work with our employees, I mean, as an example, we think it is simply business's responsibility to provide healthcare insurance payments. Like we should provide coverage for our employees. We mm-hmm. believe that every employee should have a have skin in the game. We believe that every employee should have an equity ownership in the business. Like these are just like core beliefs, and mm-hmm. because that happens to again map to the way. B Lab thinks about sustainable, transparent, responsible business. We sort of ended up with these really high scores, not because we were trying to, not because we sort of thought, "Ooh, that's responsible," but just we think that's the right way to run business. That's it's not quite the sort of obligation of business, but it's certainly an expectation. Um, and so that's sort of how we ended up with these high scores. I mean, we're you know we're in a building that's run by geothermal heat. Well, we didn't mm-hmm. choose the building because it's a geothermally heated building, but it was sort of serendipitous that we liked the building. We, we, we wanted to be an existing building. We wanted to be in an old building. We wanted to be in a sustainably managed building. And oh, by the way, they've got geothermal heat. So boom, 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 a bunch of points. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I said, we didn't need to change anything. We were just operating our business already in line with B-Lab. Um, yeah. So. Great. Um. So maybe maybe we could pivot to questions about Caprock's business model and and what the allocation of of your assets is to impact how you, and how you choose those. Sure. When we first agreed internally to start dedicating resources to building an impact investing platform, that agreement rested on a handful of critical pillars. One, we wanted to be able to build portfolios that from a risk perspective, credit perspective, duration perspective, geographic and thematic exposure perspective, and most importantly, financial return perspective, replicated our conventional or traditional portfolios. We felt like if Mm -hmm. we couldn't do that, then we would be in some way potentially guilty of malpractice. So that's one. We had to sort of see a replication of our existing investment strategy in the impact world. Um, Two, we needed to be able to to demonstrate that there was market appetite 
for this investment strategy. So we needed to be able to land one or two large clients to sort of validate the um, the commitment of resources. Um, three, um, we needed to be able to um, participate in a way that allowed us to help structure the funds so that the funds would start looking like investments that we would want to make um, because we knew the absorptive capacity in impact investing really wasn't there at the time. Um, and then four, we needed to be able to, at some point, deliver consolidated impact performance reports of the same quality that we deliver our consolidated financial performance reports. Mm -hmm. Those are the four pillars that we felt we needed to be able to solve going into this. Um, so that leads to the question of, you know, how did we select the investments? Well, it's it's a little bit humorous in hindsight now, but at the time, if you sort of just slapped the label impact on it, we were probably going to look at it. <laughs> in fact, mm -hmm. you were probably going to come to us because we were so forward by saying, hey, we want to build this discipline. We want to be investing in first funds. We're not afraid of new teams. We're not afraid of innovative strategies. Um, bring them to us. So we basically saw everything. Um, and we ended up spending a lot of time with these teams developing term sheets and developing investment strategies and helping them with with their reporting and thinking through the mm -hmm. metrics that they were be tracking. So it was a pretty big commitment from our side, from a field building perspective, to um, sort of create the absorptive capacity for the capital that we fully expected was going to flow, dot, 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 eventually. Um, and so um, that sort of gets us to how we make the investment selection. Um, so. Mm -hmm. Initially, we, we built two totally separate investment teams, right? We had our traditional investment team, and we built out an impact investing team. And what we thought was that it was going to be a really different discipline, that somehow the impact investing was going to be this, this sort of weird beast that was going to mm -hmm. require really unique and specific skill sets to really understand and do well. Quietly, in my mind, the opposite was going to happen. What I proposed um, was that eventually the disciplines would merge and that there would be sort of no point in differentiating with a label impact. But at the time, we built the separate team, um, and every impact investment had to have on the front end sort of an impact component that we assessed um, for, for effectively for viability. We then would turn it over to traditional financial due diligence, and we wanted to make sure that it was a reasonable investment, that the projected returns were reasonable, that the strategy was coherent, that the team wasn't going to blow up in a, in a, a war of acrimony, um, et cetera. And then at the end of that diligence process, if we got through the financial, you know, the rigorous financial um, diligence, we would then layer on a pretty rigorous impact assessment from a geographical and thematic perspective, which will allow us to put a framework around all the metrics that we wanted them to track and report to us. So sort of a three-phase uh, diligence process, um, starting off with the impact, quick impact assessment, then the rigorous financial, and then the impact assessment on the back end to sort of set up how we're going to figure out the reporting. Um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and so, so that leads us to the reporting piece. Um, and for that, we really struggled um, because we mm -hmm. did not want to get into a game of software development. And despite our sincere aversion to that, <laughs> we ended up doing it. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and we spent about seven years and north of a million dollars in hard and soft investments. 
developing a software platform that we spun out last January into a separate um, standalone for-profit company called IPAR, um, Impact Portfolio Assessment and Reporting. And basically it, what it allows us to do is sort of almost like on a fractal basis, uh, replicate both sort of up and down the sort of the aggregate capital stack, enterprise level information and portfolio level information so that it all looks the same which is, in a sense, what consolidated financial performance does, right? You look at it, a single stock or a single company, and you get X performance, and then the asset class looks the same, but it's aggregated, and the portfolio level aggregates the asset classes, and you end up with consolidated financial performance at the portfolio level. And we can do the same thing on an impact reporting level as well. Um, so I think that sort of gets to those that four-part question reasonably well but if you want to dig into any one piece of it like feel free to to, to probe yeah um i'm i'm wondering um i'm wondering about you know you said you had you had to commit a significant amount of your resources to building out your impact investing platform um so what did that look like in terms of like caprock's resources as a whole like how serious of a commitment was that what size was it um Sure. And and was it worth it in the end? <sighs> Great question. Um, so I will use the word tentative at first. Um, maybe timid, maybe skeptical, sort of something in the middle there. If you have a better, if you have a better <laughs> adjective. Um, and there's two pieces to the resources, right? There's the assets under advisement that we were deploying. And then there's the internal resources necessary to structure the funds and build out the reporting system, et cetera. And I would say that initially it was really asymmetric because we were doing a lot of field building. I was going around to conferences and doing a lot of talking. We were doing a lot of work with fund managers, you know, first time fund managers who were thinking about building a fund or we were talking to mm -hmm. existing fund managers who, who did, had never heard of impact and we were trying to convince them to launch an impact strategy because we really liked what they were doing in the conventional world and we thought it would apply in impact. Um, so a, 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 we've never quantified it, um, mm -hmm. but I can say that for me personally, 100% of my time was spent doing that. I mean, it was deal flow. It was speaking. We didn't have any impact clients to begin with. And so all the time that I spent was field building. And, you know, if you sort of look at my salary and look at sort of the total cost structure of the company, I think it's, you know, it's probably um, 8 to 10%. That's a total mm -hmm. guess, maybe a little bit less. Five to eight percent of our total fixed and variable costs was being were, was being pointed at impact when we had no revenues associated with it. Mm. Really asymmetric. Um, we then landed one client, this totally cool woman um, who had inherited a reasonably sized Midwestern industrial fortune, and she is a late middle age. She's single. She doesn't expect to have children. She lives in a very small house in a very rural part of the Rocky Mountains um, with no appetite for spending a lot of money um, and she doesn't want the money to revert to her family when she passes away and so we had like the, the best petri dish imaginable basically yeah. discretion, discretionary capital to work with um, and that like first client gave us enough confidence that there were other investors like her maybe not that same profile but sort of like her that we then sort of figured like this is this is going to work um and if you fast forward from that point probably three years we started landing much larger clients and if you fast forward another three years i think it is safe to say that impact investing became not the exclusive 
but certainly the most important single initiative at our firm. Mm-hmm. And I say that a little bit cautiously because I don't want anybody to take away from that statement that, hey, we are now an impact investing firm. Mm-hmm. But as far as the impact investing began to touch every single part of our business, it touches our reporting team, it touches our compliance team, it touches our investment team, it touches our business development team. It's like everybody is becoming, started to become more and more aware, more and more curious, more and more interested about this thing called impact investing. And so, whereas when we started, we had sort of roughly, you know, $300 million in capital to begin. Three years later, we had sort of 400, 450, something like that. You know, a couple of years later, we were close to a billion. So at a, when we had a billion, we had no impact capital. We got our first really large, really big client when we were at 1.5 billion. That was half a million dollar, half a billion dollar portfolio. So mm-hmm. from sort of 1.5 to two with one client, all impact. And at that point, we were sitting on you know 30 plus percent impact, and that ratio has stayed pretty stable. So now we're at four billion, and we're at about 1.2 or 1.3 billion in, in impact capital. However, that's a little bit understating it because three or four years ago, we conflated our two investment teams. So now we have one investment team. And what's cool about that is that the cross-pollination of traditional investing and impact investing has simply occurred mm. because everything that we know about our traditional investing became the foundation for how we do our diligence, due diligence in the impact world. And the stuff that we were learning about impact, like renewable energy project finance, the risks associated with climate change, the risks associated with gender issues, these became part of our due diligence for our conventional investing. So while on a self-identified basis, we've got about $1.2 billion in impact capital, the impact methodology has sort of infiltrated mm. our, our entire investment process. Mm-hmm. And... Several of our investments, which are clearly impact-oriented investments, you know, absolutely classic impact investments, have now percolated through our entire client base. And some of our clients who would never self-identify as impact investors have in their portfolio several impact investments. And to me, that's the coolest evolution because that reflects Mm -hmm. the evolution of the capital markets and the fact that so many of these investments are just really good investments. Not all of them. They will never all be great investments for everybody, but enough of the impact investment opportunity set applies to every investor that we're starting to see it throughout our client base. That is awesome. Yeah. Um, it's really exciting. So exciting. And and so like that thirty percent um of assets that are that are designated as impact assets under management, how did you I guess I'm wondering how you got to that that um that ratio. Like is like do you have a goal of No. how much you want to be? Is that naturally just um It's just it's just sort of occurring. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's just it's it seems to be pretty stable there. Um and yet I would also say that and this is sort of so two things now. Um first somewhat personal. So two years ago, two and a half years ago, we as a firm decided to sort of send me on a PR mission. And so for two for the last two years, I've really been doing a lot of media stuff um, mm-hmm. and not a lot of business development work. And so our rate of client acquisition in the impact world has slowed, um, and the rate of our traditional uh, client acquisition has not slowed. So that, that, that ratio got sort of tilted a little bit. Um, 
but to answer a question you asked several times several minutes ago that I that I I ignored um or I forgot <laughs> to answer. I forgot to answer it. Um <laughs> has it paid off? Totally. And here's why. We don't do any marketing on impact. Mm. It's all incoming. I mean, I field a call a week at least from foundations and high net worth families that have heard about this thing called impact investing and they want to explore it. They did a landscape overview. We continually came up and they want to talk to us. And so in a world, and this is sort of a, a, a sort of in, industry observation, in a world that is increasingly homogenized, I mean, every financial services company sounds like the other one. You go to their websites, they all basically look the same. They all use the same mm -hmm. colors. They all the same. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a homogenized world. Any opportunity to differentiate yourself becomes a mark of intelligence, so almost by default, mm -hmm. right? And so we have had we had a large family in Los Angeles hire us who doesn't want to do a lot of impact investing, but they said, we've done our diligence. You guys are global thought leaders on impact investing. We think that reflects the willingness to think differently. And we know that to pursue unconventional investment results requires unconventional thinking. And although we personally are not impact investors, we love that you guys are doing that. You're our guys. Hmm. So it's like, really has it paid off? Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. Yeah, and it's like um, if you look at the data, it's going gonna, it's gonna to pay off even more, right, or the, or the data. Mm -hmm. The data clearly demonstrates, and I'm going to refer to a J.P. Morgan report here for a moment, but you know, J.P. Morgan did this big um, sort of meta-analysis of all of their clients, and they came up with these somewhat sobering statistics. And I'm not going to get them exactly right, but they're going to be close enough for the purposes of this conversation. But 85% mm -hmm. of widows expect to fire their existing investment advisor when they inherit the money from their, you know, when, when their spouse passes away within three mm -hmm. years. And 95% of inheriting children expect to fire their advisor. And the number one reason given, because their advisor either didn't understand or might be actively hostile to the idea of pursuing extra financial return as part of an investment strategy. Right. And when you think about that level of transition, I mean, that basically totally eviscerates virtually every single big broker dealer in the country. Yeah. And that kind of competitive really? pressure is going to lead to huge changes, which is what we're all here for. <laughs> right. Um. I want to ask about um, IPAR a little bit more before I forget. Um, sure. Can you can you tell about um, what kind of standards you're using, or like what information are you or are you getting your impact reporting from? Is it is it standardized? Are you struggling to find ways to standardize it? So we are not struggling to standardize it, and in fact, if I could wave my magic wand, IPAR would become the standard. And the reason mm -hmm. I say that has nothing to do with ego. <laughs> the reason I say that is that most of the reporting standards that we have looked at seem to have been designed by really smart, really curious consulting companies. And so they're really complicated. And mm -hmm. they're not intuitive. They're not easy to understand. They're typically quite expensive to maintain. Um, and we designed IPAR, IPAR with a totally different sort of uh, orientation that being, let's make it as simple as intuitive po as possible. And so after a whole lot of cul-de-sacking, we settled on 
sort of one core observation. That is that all of our impact investing clients oriented their impact investing along one of two principal axes. The first, <clears throat> somatic, i.e., what problem am I trying to solve with the insertion of capital? Mm-hmm. And the second, geographic. Where am I trying to solve these problems? And sometimes those two intersected, but those were the two, that was the only two high-level axes that we heard from our clients. So we built the entire architecture of IPAR around those two ideas. The next realization that we came to was that consolidated performance reporting, be it financial or impact, required a hierarchy because consolidation is another word for dimensional reduction, right? You take a big Mm -hmm. horizontal Mm -hmm. base layer and you keep shrinking it until you get to the top of this pyramid and you have a number. So you have to figure out a structure to get to that number. And that's what IPAR does really well. And it starts off with the metrics and then above that layer are the impact sub-building blocks and above that layer are the impact building blocks and above that is the four organizing themes. And so it's a sort of four-tiered data structure that turns the process of generating consolidated impact performance reports into a data organization challenge rather than like a data labeling challenge or a data gathering challenge. Now, the sort of dirty secret here is that we're dependent upon self-reporting. And so this is the classic case of garbage in, garbage out. You know, mm-hmm. if we are getting junk gar- junk data from our asset managers, well, that's what we're reporting. And we have not yet figured out how to create a cost-effective audit trail on this stuff. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I think that is a challenge that the entire industry is going to be struggling with until, I don't know, maybe the era of big data and transparency and, you know, monitoring the entire world of <laughs> all economic activity. Maybe it maybe sort of becomes part of big data, but right now there's no answer to that. Fortunately, right, right now, mo- most of the impact asset managers are really interested in providing good data. It's how they're differentiating themselves in the marketplace. So mm-hmm. we're sort of dependent upon that right now. Um, <laughs> what's that line from Streetcar Named Desire? I, you know, I've often depended upon the kindness of strangers. Like, I've often depended <laughs> upon the, dat- the data of strangers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, I guess, I, I mean, I guess there's the hope that, that something like SASB will, will truly become the standard and that even um, these companies will be required to report to the government on these, on, you know, an integrated bottom line, not just financials to the SEC. Thank you for saying that. Um, I had a long conversation with David Bank at Impact Alpha on this exact t- topic. And what I sort of proposed to him was, similar to what you just said. I said, hey, mm-hmm. if all these big companies are saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to snap our reporting to the SDGs and you know, our company is going to address SDG number 3, 7, and 11, and if a CEO says that publicly, mm-hmm. doesn't that introduce a lay, some notion of materiality to what they're saying? Yeah. It must, right? And if, if that is the case, then suddenly the SDG framework, which is backed up by all the work that SASB is doing in terms of materiality, becomes mm-hmm. part of the quarterly the quarterly analyst call because the analysts are going to be asking, all right, you said you're going to be addressing SDGs number three, seven, and 11, or three, four, and 11, mm-hmm. or whatever I said. Um, how's progress going? And then suddenly it's an issue of disclosure. Mm-hmm. And I think to your point, that's how this starts to become integrated 
into right. the operating system of capitalism. Right. So, you know, we've been talking a little bit about um, big big trends in the business world in general and in the finance industry. And, and like you said, your point of, um, you know, all of these folks who are inheriting assets are going to be pivoting from the traditional model on on a philosophical basis, they're going to be, um, you know, searching for searching for something different. And you've spoken a little bit about capitalism before, and and you you know you referenced your mom as an environmental capitalist, and that's kind of that's a lot of what we talk about at Bard is um, is what the future of capitalism is going to look like. Um, and I'm I'm co-leading a, a discussion group at, at Bard around that very topic, and we're working on doing some um, scenario planning about um, what the future of capitalism could look like based on changing oil prices and um, and if the if the economy is going to continue to be extractive of resources or if it's going to become more inclusive of people. And so, anyway, um, I wanted to hear a little bit about what what kind of what your vision for the future of capitalism is, what you think the the big forces and factors are are going to be behind this shift. Thank you and I probably share share a vision for that, right? Um mm-hmm. and the metaphor that I would use is that, you know, capitalism is an operating system. It wasn't handed to us carved into stone tablets. And much like a smartphone, like we might not understand how a smartphone actually works. I think very few people on the planet understand how it actually works. But we all understand the need for periodic upgrades. It's an operating system challenge. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, you know the more we understand about climate change, you know, current political environment notwithstanding, the more we understand about climate change, the more indefensible it becomes, as an example, to continue to operate or continue to use the operating system of capitalism as if the negative consequences associated with climate change don't exist. And I think that um, I'm going I'm to go out a little. I'm going to go on a little bit of a limb here, talking about sort of the evolutionary notion of capitalism, and that. It, it was um, it was in my lifetime that it was basically okay to dump waste into our nation's rivers, mm-hmm. and it was in my parents' lifetime that child labor was a perfectly acceptable cog in the global manufacturing machine, mm-hmm. and it was in the not too distant past that slavery formed the early links in what we now think of as a global supply chain. And every one of those practices became unacceptable. Mm -hmm. Not because they weren't financially viable. And I know this sounds, this is hard to even say, but it's way cheaper to dump your toxic waste in the river that runs by your factory than it is to treat it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And yet as a society and as participants that as an undergirding system for capitalism, we in aggregate decided that that was not going to be acceptable anymore. Mm 
and it was made so. And yes, current political environment notwithstanding, current drive towards deregulation notwithstanding, I think capitalism is an extraordinarily resilient optimization mechanism. And the question is not, is capitalism good or bad? Does capitalism kill us or crush us? Is it an inexorable wealth concentration mechanism? Those are not mm-hmm. the right questions. The question is, to what end do we seek to orient this optimization machine? Right. Right now it's optimized for one thing, financial profit. That's just what mm-hmm. it is, right? But why not optimize it for environmental sustainability or gender and race inclusion? I mean, there's no reason that it can't be. Those are mm-hmm. metrics that are just as viable as free cash flow metrics or quick ratios on debt to asset coverage. It's like these are all me- these are all sort of facets of capitalism that have they sort of came into being at the hand of man, right? So why not? And so when I think yeah. about the vision, right? When I think about the vision, there's the consumer drive. And the consumer drive is really really clear. As an example, organic food is growing at 18% a year. Conventional food is flat. Demand mm-hmm. for sustainably manufactured furniture is growing at double digits. Demand for non-sustainably, uh, you know, ma- uh, constructed furniture is flat. Sustainably harvested timber properties outperform conventional timber properties, even giving the same rate of growth. Why? Because they're more durable. You get conservation easement sales. You get carbon sales. You get increased yield coming off of an asset that historically has not had that. And these factors eventually start to reshape capitalism. And I think, you know, we've, I've talked about this at length. Maybe you've even seen something. But, you know, capitalism is an evolutionary animal. Mm-hmm. It evolves. And so when I think about the future of capitalism, what I see are these sort of wide-ranging constellation of, of data points that in aggregate could start to paint a really interesting picture. Sustainability, inclusion, regeneration. And yeah, we are not there. And my mm-hmm. my, my most fervent hope is that we are not too late, at least from a climate perspective. Um, but I I don't know, I'm sort of weirdly optimistic, and maybe because I'm just operating in this echo chamber of impact, right, where we all sort of get around and congratulate ourselves on how wonderful <laughs> we are. Yeah, so I don't know if I answered your question at all. Um, yeah, no. I mean, it's a really hard question, and um, and we've we've been talking about similar things, like how, how right now the way that capitalism operates is that it, it maximizes profit instead of optimizing some of these other things that that are, are around evolving values. And you made a, a lot of good examples of, of things that we've evolved past. And I also think it's, I I agree with you. It's really important to engage with with the people who are who are skeptical and are pushing back because that's how we're going to extend this outside of the bubble that we currently you know share back and forth around um i do have i do have just two qu- quick questions um one of them is around um you know career advice for me as a as an mba student in this space you know i i don't have a traditional finance background um and so i'm curious about what advice you could give or ideas you have of alternative pathways to um like can you can you totally overstep the traditional investment bank 
grunt work experience or what do you think? Well, it depends on what part of the capital markets you want to enter. Mm-hmm. If you if you want to be deploying capital um, as um, as an advisor like me, mm-hmm. you can do almost any path. <clears throat> um, I'm, I'm going to caveat that. <clears throat> I, th- I think right now, at, at this moment in time, building a career in in impact is hard. There's mm-hmm. not a lot of job openings, um, and from what I've seen, the demand is primarily for sort of mid-career people, like people who have experience already who are looking to transition um, and mm-hmm. bring that experience into a sort of a different application. Mm-hmm. But I think that's changing because there's not a lot, there's not what we call bench strength, right? There's not a lot of sort of young, sort of not, not intro, sort of post-entry level position people who are willing to just like run through walls <laughs> right mm-hmm. to get mm-hmm. that to get that experience um and i think that's going to show up really really soon I mean, you know tpg as you, as you know they had that really successful um capital raise for the rise fund but they've already announced rise two and they've announced it's going to be three billion bain capital was wildly oversubscribed for their double impact fund and i think they're looking at the same thing you've got you know kkr and Blackstone and BlackRock and some of the mm-hmm. largest asset managers in the world are all looking at this, and there's going to be a pull function over the next five years for recently minted MBAs with unconventional paths that have a background that would be more suitable to impact investing. And I say that really carefully, right? Because I don't want to like shine you, but I think that mm-hmm. I think um, you know to be a really effective impact investor, you do actually need to be some like weird hybrid of you know, Warren Buffett and Mother mm-hmm. Teresa and MacGyver, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. And that is not a conventional person. And so I think in a weird way, having an unconventional path through an MBA program is the best way. It's just right now it's kind of tough because without those sort of investment chops, if mm-hmm. you want to get on the if you want to get on the, the capital market side, not the advisor side, it's just harder because most firms are still pretty small and they're going to want to hire somebody who can add value sort of on day mm-hmm. one, hit the ground running. There's mm-hmm. not a lot of places you can go right now to get on the ground training. Now, having said that, um, you know, I've, I've had the distinct pleasure and honor of interacting with um, MBA candidates from, from a wide array of schools um, all over all over the Western world, which is, has been really exciting for me. Um, mm-hmm. And it continues to surprise me how many people reach out to me for a conversation sort of like this. And I sort of say, well, it's really, really hard. And then three months later, they'll send me and say, hey, I got a job with DBL Capital. And Nancy really mm-hmm. thinks the world of you. And I got a, I got a job at SJF or I got a job at Microvest. And I think, I think it's possible that my view is a little bit too limited. And there might mm-hmm. actually be a, a higher absorptive capacity that I'm aware of. Um, which would be good. But I do still think that um, as much as I don't like to sort of recommend this, I think that there is at this moment, there's no downside other than to your soul (laughs) to, you know, going to wall street and spending two years in an investment banking training program and just looking at a lot of term sheets, looking at Mm -hmm. a lot of discounted cash flow models and looking at a lot of deal flow. Um, and maybe even working on a couple of the transactions, because I think 
there are places in this world and places in this economy where being sort of young and fresh and unencumbered by tradition and experience is a benefit. And there are places mm -hmm. where it's not. And I mm -hmm. think in investing, like the more you know, the more seasoned you are, generally speaking, the better you get. Mm -hmm. And if you really want to transform an industry, you really need to be able to understand how it works and the history of it. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought mm -hmm. about it that way. And if you're a change agent, you want to be operating from within the system, then that's totally true. If you want to stand outside and throw bombs at it and sort of launch your own fund, well, that's a different <laughs> way, of, a sort of different way of, of being a change agent. Um, yeah. Well, this is a lot of food for thought for us, and I'm sure for listeners. And um, thank you so much again for making the time to speak with us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you for reaching out to chat with me. I always, I always enjoy these, these conversations. Always. Learn more about Caprock at caprock.com. Join us for the next episode of the Impact Report on Friday, September 20th. For our complete lineup and other news, visit us at impactreportpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. BARD MBA in Sustainability is one of a select few graduate programs globally that fully integrates sustainability into a core business curriculum. Learn more at bard.edu slash MBA.